If there's a trend, you'll know he'll attend. Oh shoot, oh shoot, your boy did it again. You're now listening to Bobby and Friends. Bobby and Friends. Bobby and Friends. You know, take a stand, take one, take a stand, something very different. Welcome to another episode of Bobby and Friends. Now, in today's episode, I have on Tony Aaron, who is a professor of government as well as foreign service at Georgetown University, and he's also chair of the government department here at Georgetown. So he'll be talking about his experience of growing up in the DMV area, um, just overall what that experience was like, as well as why he ended up coming to Georgetown for school and as well as teaching here. Um, and you also get, just get to hear about some of his takes about DC, um, just about the different views that um, people have about universities and sort of whether our universities indoctrinating students to lean one way or the other. And so you just get to hear about his takes on that as well as just what's happening in the city of DC. And so hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Bobby underscore X underscore friends, and make sure to let your friends, your parents, your mama, your friend, amazing everybody uh, listen to this podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, hello, Tony. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bobby. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming on to Bobby and Friends. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a great uh, discussion today and just get to learn more about you. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, so could you first sort of uh, introduce yourself in terms of, you know, what are the names in which you go by and uh, sort of where you're from and, and sort of what you currently do now? So my name is Tony Arend and I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, grew up in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, which is kind of halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And then I came to Georgetown as an undergrad in 1976 when Gerald Ford was president. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, did, I did my undergrad here and uh, then came back, did my graduate work at the University of Virginia, and then came back to Georgetown as a professor. And I've been teaching full-time at Georgetown since 1987. So it's it's been a long and greatly enjoyable and rewarding career here. But I've always kind of been a local person uh, over all those years. And I've, I've, I've lived in Maryland, but then I've lived in the District of Columbia since 1987 as well. So this is, this is, this is, been my my home for a long time and so how was it like sort of growing up i guess for us sort of in the dmv area at that time and and just you know just talk about a little bit about your childhood and just growing up in the dmv area and what that experience was like well you know one of the most important experiences i had when i was an undergrad when i was an undergrad when i was in elementary school is they had just recently desegregated elementary schools. And I have to tell you, this was such an important move because when I was in first grade, I think it was the year before, so I was in first grade, 1964, and second grade, Severn Elementary School, small elementary school, desegregated. My second grade teacher, Gloria Jones, was an African-American woman. She was an amazing teacher. A few years later, the principal of our school was an African-American woman. My sixth grade teacher, teacher was a guy named Preston Hebron, who was an African-American man. And the, re- the reason I'm mentioning this is this was really important as a kid growing up. My parents were always very open and, and loving and supportive of, of everyone. And I think as a, as a kid, it was great to see people who were not looking the same way I did from different backgrounds, who were in authority positions, who became my teachers and my mentors. And the reason I emphasize this is because that's not everybody's experience. That was my experience in, in Maryland. I remember being in high school 
talking to one of our high school teachers. It's my uh, Spanish teacher. And she grew up in Idaho. And she said, now this is gonna blow your mind. She said she had never seen in person an African-American until she went to college. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, what, what do you mean? This is ridiculous. I mean, you know, my second grade teacher was African-American. We had all kinds of people uh, at our school. And that was where I started to realize how blessed I was and how fortunate I was to be able to interact at a very young age with with, with people of all different backgrounds. And, and also growing up in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, we were very close to Fort Meade. And so what that meant is that there was a, a large military population that would come in and out. And so there would be people that would come in, there would be people that would come out, some people that were kids of officers, some people that were kids of enlisted people, and that was a really good experience. So growing up in the area, and, and as you know, uh, both the District of Columbia and Baltimore had very large African-American populations. So that was that was an important part of my my experience, and I think that's influenced uh, you know my my views on on race and my views on justice. So that that's just one little little anecdote, but that's just something that, that really strikes me. And, and as you take stuff for granted when you're a kid, yeah. Uh, and I remember my mother saying to me, they didn't have a clue that Mrs. Jones was an African American until they went in some weeks later and met with her because I, I never mentioned it because it's like, she's my second grade teacher. <laughs> That's kind of just what we, you know, I mean, uh, and she was, uh, she was a good teacher. She kept, t she tried to get me to handwrite properly, but I never, I still haven't. She, you know, she's probably turning over in her grave because I still can't uh, write very well from a handwriting perspective. Uh, but, uh, but either way, that, that was just a, a really, a really great experience uh, growing up. Well, you know, Tony, the interesting thing is that I think you actually might have had more black teachers in your formidable years of education than, you know, I did. Obviously, I grew up in Iowa, so there is something to be said about that within itself. But uh, it's very interesting seeing you sort of describe that experience of, you know, having sort of that many amount of black teachers, which I think for some of us is actually an incredible amount, especially for those formidable, formidable years. Um, and so it's very, just very interesting sort of uh, looking at that experience that you had. And so sort of, you know, you're growing up in Baltimore um, and what made you decide to come to Georgetown? You know, out of all those schools that you could have went to, getting out of the DMV area, why did you want to stay sort of uh, in this area and go to a school like Georgetown? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I have to say, if I were giving my 17-year-old self advice, I might say, think a little bit broadly. Yes. And here's what got me to go to Georgetown. I didn't want to go someplace in Baltimore, per se, because that seemed too close to home. Yeah. And so my father had been, uh, he, was, uh, he started off in Baltimore County Public Schools as a junior high school teacher and then moved into administration. He got a doctorate, moved into administration. And he taught at a couple colleges. He taught at what was, I guess it's now Coppin University, but it was called Coppin State Teachers College. And so he taught there and he also taught at Hopkins. And the thought to apply to uh, Hopkins, for example, didn't even occur to me because it was too close to home. Now, Washington seemed further away, although that, that kind of seems silly because <laughs> probably if I were to drive from my house to Georgetown or from my house to, say, Johns Hopkins, it'd be about the same amount of time. 
but we, we were more Baltimore in our orientation. But what got me to apply to Georgetown was my cousin, Dwayne Glossner. Dwayne was two years older than I, and I he still is two years older than I and, I, and I have so much respect for him. And he knew I was interested in politics. And he said, well, man, Georgetown's really the place to go if you're interested in politics. Now, I didn't really know much more about it than that. Uh, one of my uh, fellow students at my high school, Rundle Senior High School, a guy named Luke Cooper was two years older than I, and he went to Georgetown, so I knew somebody would do it. And so, but that was really what got me interested, was my cousin saying this, and he was just one of these people that had a tremendous amount of, in my view, wisdom and insight, as much as somebody who's you know, like 16 can say somebody who's 18 has wisdom and insight. And so that got me to apply to Georgetown. I applied, got in, and uh, the rest is kind of uh, history there. I got in early. The funny thing is I had not visited Georgetown's campus. Really? First time I saw the campus was when I came as a first-year student. Wow. <laughs> well, you know what? I think that there might be a few... Uh you know, freshmen who probably might be in the similar predicament as you. Um, but um, also sort of, and so what were some of your, you know, most treasured or favorite um, memories from sort of your undergrad uh, time at Georgetown that, you know, you just, you know, you just always ponder on. So what are those memories that you always think about? Well, a, a couple, I'm going to give you one broader one in a second, but I think it's the people. I mean, and the moments. I remember being in my dorm my first year. My dorm was Loyola, which is the L and LXR. They used to call it Loyola Savior and Rider. They used to call them different things. So I was uh, on the fourth floor of Loyola, 422. And I can remember, you know, walking down the halls and hearing uh, Fleetwood Mac or, or More Than a Feeling by Boston uh, or... Who else would you hear at the time? Some of the uh, old Elton John stuff would be playing. And, and you can just sort of remember this. And then the people that would be associated with it. I'm still very close friends. One of my best friends is a guy named David Gutschman, who lived three doors uh, down from me. And uh, other people, uh, John Whitney, who's gone, went on to become a Jesuit, now lives in Seattle, was just down the floor. We would go spend time together. We would talk about music. We would talk about everything. We would talk about philosophy and theology. And so, so a lot of it was those memories. And then the, the professors I had. I had so many people that had an important influence on me. One was uh, Father Jim Walsh. I had him for Intro to Biblet. He passed away a few years ago, but he, he was one of my spiritual mentors. Uh, Bill O'Brien was my mentor in the government department, and ultimately I became his successor in the government department. So he taught international law, and, and I, I teach international law. So he had a, a huge and uh, profound uh, impact on me back in the day. One of my other main experiences, I lived in Germany my junior year, and that was probably the most important formative year of my life. And the reason I would say that is, is several fold. First of all, we weren't messing around. We were doing serious work and we were doing it in Germany. <laughs> so we had, had, to, had to get into that. And it was the year that really convinced me that I wanted to be an academic because I started working in classes with graduate students. I started looking at what the academic world would entail and I got really excited about it. So that was one thing. The other thing is it really did improve my language skills in German tremendously. And then a third thing, everybody should be somewhere where you were in the minority. Now, I was in the minority. I might not have been recognizably in the minority, uh, 
However, as soon as somebody started speaking German to me, they knew I was not from around there. <laughs> and as much as I tried, I mean, you would have people say to me, uh, you must be an American because of the way you're dressed. I had people say that, but it's really good to be somewhere where you're not the majority, where people can, where you can say, oh, I see what it's, you know, it's different. And also as an American, everything the U.S. ever did that was wrong suddenly became my fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get, and, and, but that's a good, those are all good experiences. And I got to become friends with, with German uh, students. Uh, we had a bunch of Americans from, from Georgetown as well, but that was probably one of the most important experiences. I mean, Georgetown made it happen. It's, it's kind of weird to say it was an important Georgetown experience. So I went to Georgetown, but it was done through Georgetown and, and Georgetown uh, really made it happen. Uh, I, I also love the campus ministry uh, activities that were uh, taking place on, on campus. And, and I say this as a Protestant, a Methodist, uh, on a Jesuit campus who fell in love with Jesuit spirituality. And many years later, I did a, an eight-day silent retreat with Jim Walsh as my spiritual director. But uh, we, we had uh, Protestant services on, on campus that I used to go to on uh, Sunday night. I used to go to a, a, a church in, in DC or in Georgetown, but then I, we had uh, Protestant services on, on campus. And uh, the, the minister there was a guy named Kyle McGee, who was an African-American Episcopalian, whose wife was also an Episcopalian, who was one of the first women irregularly ordained into the Episcopal Church. Wow. Yeah, so it was kind of a, you know, a really, you know, just an exciting, exciting time uh, uh, there as well. And so those were all uh, important uh, formative experiences. And I mean, I can think of other things, like I lived with uh, five other guys senior year in a house on Tunlaw Road, because back in those days, you were only guaranteed one year on campus. Oh, wow. That's all I got. Freshman year, I was on campus. I lost the lottery. Sophomore year, I was at Alban Towers, which a building the university used to own up by the cathedral. Junior year, I was in Germany. And then I lost the lottery coming back from Germany. And fortunately, one of my uh, friends, a guy named Jay Spiegel, called me and was able to let me join them in the house on Tunlaw Road. That was also a good experience. Uh, six of us living in a house uh, together. And one of the guys in the house, a guy named Paul Cavino, we used to consider him a master because what he used to do is he, he'd task us with this and that and the other, and you have to do all these things. And, you know, somebody's, but you know what? We all, the house was clean. We all did, uh, did, did stuff that we were supposed to. We cleaned the oven. We did all these things. <laughs> so he was sort of running the show. And uh... he was, he was a taskmaster. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to get sort of wise politics. What is it about politics that intrigued you for you to even and ending up devoting sort of your life and your career uh, to it. So what was it, that thing about politics that really pushed you to want to just study more and even teach it, you know, uh, at university? You know, it's uh, probably the initial motivation does not come from the most noble place. And so the initial motivation probably comes from the fact that I wanted attention, that I, I liked being the center of attention, and I liked being in front of people, and I liked giving talks. And I, I had done some stuff. When I was in high school, I was on the Anne Arundel County Board of Education, and we had to change the state law to create a voting position, and, and I testified before the governor. I did all these things, and that was just kind of what, what motivated me. But I, I honestly think a lot of it was ego, is what was really driving me. So when my cousin Dwayne Glossner said, oh, if you want to go into politics, you go to Georgetown. I was like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to run for office. I want to do that. I mean, it's, it, it is stereotypical Georgetown undergrad. That was, that was me. Now, what led to some changes was 
honestly a concern that I I didn't want to have to make what I perceived at the time to be the kind of compromises mm -hmm. I would have to make to go into politics. Yeah. Compromising one's values. I'm, I'm not sure that's that I see it that way anymore, but I did at the time. I had served as an intern on Capitol Hill for a senator, and so I, I decided to move into a different direction. And I think what got me interested in, in teaching was, I still like interacting with people, I still like getting in front of groups, and also the material I find intellectually stimulating. So I teach international law, I find it interesting, I like it. It's uh, it's the puzzle. It's the it's the fascination of of the law and the decision making process. And so that's what kind of got me uh, into that, and also wanting to to, to serve others and to you know play a, a positive role and i've always felt at some point i'd still like to do something in in government at, at, at some point but you know speaking very honestly i i think uh, i think a lot of it is the the psychic rewards you get when you're teaching and and, and i i sometimes say it's very similar to what rewards people get that are performers that are actors yeah. i once compared teaching to acting and a friend of mine who done some acting said that it's different <laughs> And, he, and I, here's what he said, I think it makes a lot of sense. He said, you know, when you're teaching, um, or put it this way, when you're acting, you're playing somebody else. When you're teaching, it's all you out. And I thought th that actually makes a, that makes a little bit of sense because even though there's a performance to it, it's still, I'm not playing somebody else. Right. It's me, it's just a particular kind of me. I mean, it's a different kind of me than might be, you know, sitting next to somebody on the, the bus, but or having a quiet conversation, but it's very much a, a part of me. But, but there's still that, that, that psychic satisfaction when you're interacting with folks and, and, and it comes not just in hearing yourself talk it's not that it's in being able to communicate and seeing the lights turn on in other people and seeing other people be receptive to what it is that you're you're doing and uh and sort of on to that so you currently serve as the chair of the government department at georgetown um sort of what responsibility do you go into that job with in terms of, you know, you're right in the heart of politics, right in D.C. Uh, there's a lot going on, both domestically as well as internationally. So sort of what sort of responsibility do you carry with that position and sort of what are certain values that you feel like as if um, you must uh, incorporate sort of within that job that you have as the chair of the government department here at Georgetown? Well, one of the things that I think any any professor at, at Georgetown would do is to be committed to the concept of core personality. So the care of the whole person, a Georgetown tradition, is to try to help coordinate a department where that's always in front of us, where we're always concerned about the whole person, meaning the whole student, the whole faculty member, the whole staff member. So that's that's one of the things I see myself as as trying to be a shepherd of that that concept and making sure that that people know that uh, and that in all our interactions we we do that. Uh, another thing is in the government department is the connection between we study government, we study American government, comparative government, international relations, political theory, with a view to making people better understand part of the human experience so that we can improve it. I mean, we're not just doing this for fun, although it can be fun, but we're doing with, with a view of understanding human nature, understanding human structures of governance so that we can make them better and better meaning more just, more equitable, more inclusive. And, and, and this has been something that I, I think has been foremost 
in the department. So I came in as chair. I, I've been doing a lot of administrative stuff, but I came in as chair on the 1st of June. And some of the things we had to confront were things like the murder of George Floyd, for example. Uh, recently, the anniversary of, of the, the murder of Breonna Taylor. And, and, and we can just go on. And that calls upon us as a government department to respond. How can we make sure we're doing two things? One, how can we make sure that we're teaching people about justice, about equity, about race, about systemic racism in America, and what these things mean? And then how can we better equip people as citizens to go into the world, whether we're talking about undergrads or master's students or PhD students, whomever, to go into the world to try to do good in that area. So that's been something that, that has been weighing on, on us. We recently put together a uh, working group in the department that consisted of faculty, staff, undergrads, and grad students to come up with some ideas. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying, they, they put some proposals together and we're moving to adopt as many as, as makes sense. So that's one thing. The, the other thing is as chair of the department, you're interacting with, I have, there are probably a total of 60 some faculty associated with the government department that have voting rights in the government department. And so you're presiding in the sense of coordinating, working, trying to build consensus among those individuals. You, you, the chair of the department doesn't like make decisions and, and hand down edicts. Most people at the university don't do that anyway, but yeah. there are some positions, but, but you know, it's not like I'm head of Microsoft or I just make this. So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to build consensus. And so one of the things I'm you know, really trying to do is, is help forge that, help continue to build a sense of, of community among the faculty, the staff, and the students as we try to implement uh, a whole series, not just the justice, equity, inclusion stuff, but a whole series of, of ideas that will make the department better suited to prepare people for careers and for service to the world. Uh, well, you know, I think that's that's very interesting and, and sort of also always thinking about sort of what new things to incorporate sort of in, in the vision that you all have as a department going forward whatnot. Um, and it's funny you sort of talk about including some of these different measures such as equity, justice, and inclusion and whatnot. I was actually listening to a Heritage Foundation webinar about two weeks ago. Um, it, it had to do with work, but uh, nonetheless, um, and they were talking about sort of this idea that, you know, we need to stop indoctrination within sort of our universities. Um, and for them, they were sort of describing sort of measures such as diversity, equity, and inclusion as indoctrinating sort of young people. Uh, and that that didn't sort of help us to reach sort of common good and, and sort of have young people go out in the workforce to create a, and bring about common good. And so what would your response to sort of that kind of criticism that universities are indoctrinating young people with these diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of perspectives and visions, um, you know, uh, and that that's not good for the common good. So what would be your response to that kind of criticism? Well, if anybody thinks uh, we as faculty could indoctrinate anybody to anything, good for them. <laughs> it works. Uh, I, I guess what what I would say is is there 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 are several things involved in this. Uh, one, if we're in if if you see us as trying to inculcate, I'm going to use that term instead of indoctrinate. And the explain I, that word uh, for some of our uh, listeners. Yes, the, if if you if we're trying to inculcate civility, respect for individuals and the value of human dignity. I'm guilty of that. Mm -hmm. 
but, but, but to me, those are the values on which this country is based. Uh, but they're also the values on which the university is based. Uh, you know, that, that to me is what the Jesuit tradition should mean, is we're trying to in, in, inculcate, we're trying to convey the idea that civility is important, yeah. that every human being is sacred, that every human being is entitled to human dignity, irrespective of their, their gender, irrespective of their sexual orientation, irrespective of their, their, their race, their, their religion, their ability status. That's it. And, and to me, I mean, I, you know, to, to be theological for a moment, that comes from the good Lord. I mean, in other words, that, that, that's kind of a basis yeah. of what it means to be, to be human. So are we trying to do that? I would say yes, but we're also trying to promote debate on ideas and debate on concepts. So we can debate, for example, how best to realize human dignity. I think that's an important debate. But I think we can't, as a university, debate whether we should attribute human dignity to human beings. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's <laughs> to me that that that's that's a that's a uh, an immoral position. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like you know, like coming in and saying, uh, let's debate the value of the Holocaust being good. The Holocaust was not good. It'll never be good. Right. For instance, you know, th there are a lot of things one can debate. You know, you can debate how German nationals should have responded. You can debate how the church should have responded. But I don't really see it as a debate that exterminating people would be considered good. Right. And, and, and I think so that there, there are some things where I think the values of the university uh are clear, and I would say if you look at the values of this country, the, 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 this, the, the country comes from a very strange place <laughs> because the, the country was based on slavery. Slavery was an economic system that fed the economic engine of the United States in its early days, and that was evil. At the same time, Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, and I went to the University of Virginia and they would sing his praises. Thomas Jefferson was able to articulate ideas that transcended him as a human being and transcended his time. So when he said, or wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and we would add women, are created equal. Well, he didn't live that in his life right. at all. But those ideas have come to mean things probably even more powerful than, than Jefferson meant. And, and those ideals are things, if, if somebody came in and said, I don't think human beings are entitled to equal treatment, I, I feel as a university, we're going to say that's wrong. Uh, you could say that. I mean, you know, you have the right to say that. But I think we have to say that that's wrong. So is that indoctrination? I think it's inculcating certain, what I would argue, fundamental beliefs. Uh, so indoctrination, I, again, getting back to that, I would say it means to me, uh, or encounter to that, we talk about civility, we, we teach civil discourse, and we promote that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I'm sorry you can't come to class and shout somebody down. Right. Uh, 
you have to have civil discourse. It also means fundamental respect for human dignity, and that's not negotiable. Uh, we're, we're not going to negotiate that. Now, as far as other perceptions of, of indoctrination, we could also counter and say that for years in this country, people have been indoctrinated into a whole other series of, of beliefs. And I mean, you, you think about the, the lost cause in the American Civil War. And the way this got manifested is that the Civil War was really about states' rights. And, you know, everybody was just fine on both sides and hero and all, all these people were, were heroes. When I was a kid, that was kind of what I heard. That was what I heard in the classroom. Now, I, I went to fourth grade in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. So th that was the kind of, so, okay. But I mean, even though my father was doing his, his doctorate down there. But, but that was what I heard. And there are a whole host of people who've been indoctrinated, if you will, in those beliefs. And when you start looking at what was actually going on, that wasn't what was going on. The Civil War was about slavery. It was about maintaining a system where people were enslaved. And part of what probably the Heritage Foundation is criticizing is those of us who are trying to correct that, who are trying to say, wait a minute, this is what the Civil War, go back and look at the documents. I mean, it's not like I'm making this up. But what you have is you have a mythology developing uh, of this lost cause and of what the Civil War was about. And the fact that they would, you know, as a kid, I didn't think anything of it, that I would go to Fort Lee. And then all of a sudden it started to hit me, man, would I go to Germany, would I be in Germany and go to Fort Goebbels? or Fort Hitler? I mean, no. I mean, you know, these individuals rebelled against the government of the United States and they were being honored. And many of these honors didn't occur in, in 1869. These were things that were being done in this century and were part of this lost cause, part of sort of the, the re-segregation of America or part of this Jim Crow tradition, which is one reason I'm, I'm kind of uh, free, free basing here for a second, but this is why one of the things that fundamentally irritates me are these efforts right now at voter suppression. And we're seeing these laws in, in Georgia, in Arizona, in various other places, and it is fundamentally unjust, and it's really trying to turn things back. I mean, we know why it's happening, but it's also based on a, on a mythology. That there's this, now we got, you know, the, the, the big lie that, that Donald Trump actually won the election. And that people are therefore saying, well, the only reason that it looked like Biden won the election was because there was voter fraud, which there was no evidence of any significant voter fraud. And so how do we have to do that? Well, we've got to limit the votes. We have to limit Dropbox. We've got to limit when people can vote. We can't let people vote on Sundays. I mean, all these things. And you look at it and it's I can't see it as any other way is racially motivated. And it, it's irritating. And to, to me, at this moment in time, that is one of the biggest frustrations I see is that states are trying, some not all states, but some states are, are trying to do this. And, and I also have a little bit of a vested interest there because I taught John Ossoff in two classes when he was an undergrad at, at Georgetown. And oh, wow. I think his, 
Raphael Warnock and his and John Ossoff's victory are one reason why we're seeing people move back on some of these things, and it's really frustrating. Great input on that, and、uh, also amazing that you know you taught a current sitting U.S. senator.、Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've taught a lot of other great、uh, Georgetown students who went on to do amazing things.、Uh, but、uh, sort of with that sort of energy, I think we'll go to sort of sort of the last、uh, minutes of our conversations. Just some speed round questions,、uh, just、sure. about life in D.C.、Um, And so I, I heard from my professor that you know you obviously are interested in jazz. Is there any specific artist within sort of that jazz scene within DC that you're uh, uh, of great、uh, admiration of, or are you yourself an artist within that、uh, scene? Or no, so I, I studied.、Uh, I tell you who knows the jazz is Maurice Jackson. He's ri- literally written the book. You know Professor Jackson. Maurice Jackson has written the book on jazz in DC.、Really? This is the book you got to get on that. DC jazz. Yeah, so Professor Maurice Jackson and Blair Rubble, editors, stories of jazz music in Washington D.C. So the thing I guess I would say about、uh, about music in in D.C. is it's changed. Yeah. And you know, you you go back to the days when there were a lot of music venues. So there was the cellar door right down the street. I'm on 34th Street, right down the street from me, and they had all kinds of people playing there.、Um, Miles Davis recorded at the Cellar Door back back in the day.、Uh, Neil Young uh, uh, recorded there and、uh, did stuff, but、uh, that closed a bunch of years ago, and it's now Starbucks. So that's a sad, sad、yeah. thing. There was a, a venue down、uh, like under the Whitehurst called the Bayou that closed, and now. I'm, I'm hearing that Blues Alley is going to close. That's that's located right down here off of Wisconsin. Is that the sort、like, of brick building? Yeah, yeah. And I, ju- I just saw this a couple days ago, and and it's closing. So what's real? And, and then there was a place called Gypsy Sally's, which I have also been to, which was fairly new. That closed. Wow. That, but that was fairly new. That had only been in existence for maybe five or or six years. But these classic places like the Cellar Door and the Bayou, and now Blues Alley. Uh, closing down now. There are other places on, like the U Street corridor, which which has seemed to to, to take over. Now I don't know what it's been like after COVID,、uh, but、uh, it's it's sad that we don't have more of these places in Georgetown. <laughs> and I remember walking by the cellar door with a friend of mine, Will Layman, and、uh, who actually teaches a course on on on, on jazz and diplomacy, I think. Uh, the School of Foreign Service, and I said, "Will, we should. We don't have enough money to buy it, but I said we should buy this and call it Will and Tony's Georgetown Cellar Door, and bring it, bring it back." But、uh, I studied piano in Baltimore at a place called the Peabody Institute of Music. But my my piano playing isn't isn't what it used to be、uh, back back in the day. Uh, I had been going until the pandemic to the Georgetown Piano Bar, which is on M Street, and a friend of mine, Spencer Bates,、uh, plays and performs there. Again, he hasn't performed since March of last year、uh, because of things. So I, I don't honestly know what's going to happen to both music places in general in DC and, and jazz in, in particular. 
in, in DC. But uh, you know, back back in the day, as Maurice talks about in his book, it was uh, it was quite a quite a happening place. But I I think, and I'm I'm making this up. I think there's going to be a huge transformation mm-hmm. after COVID, and I just don't know what it's going to be. Well, you know what? I hope at least maybe the. Uh... American Rescue Plan helps Elise out with some of these other, some of these venue plans and restaurants and and whatnot. Um, and what that sort of, what's your favorite place or, or location to visit around DC? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, it depends on what I'm looking for. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I still love the Smithsonian. I just, yeah. I mean, yeah, all, yeah. there's so many places in the Smithsonian, but I mean, that's that's a fun place. Uh, I like uh, I like running in Rock Creek Park. I haven't done that in a while, but I like running in Rock Creek Park. In terms of restaurants. Probably my favorite is, uh, and I'm going to order delivery from them after we get off the, <laughs> the car. Uh, the Peacock Cafe, okay. with uh, on Prospect Streets, run by uh, two brothers, uh, Maziar and Shahab Farivar, who came from Iran uh, back in the day and went to school in the United States, and then have opened that place up in I think 1991. So that's that's a favorite favorite. I mean, I like the tombs too. I mean, you know that, that there there are a lot of uh, favorite places, but I also like uh, just sort of walking around one thing i love just walking down to the waterfront taking photos uh going on the canal and 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 just sort of enjoying myself uh self there so you know and i mean who knows i hope i'll be i haven't been to the capital in a few years i don't know what the capital is going to look like now (laughs) yeah i i have not seen the capital until i think i think the week of election night because i went down there when obviously they announced who had won i think that's that's the last time i've been down there so i actually don't know what it what it even looks like currently right now um but uh I have to ask you this because I always ask my guests: baked and wire or Georgetown cupcakes? Well, baked and wire. All right. <laughs> no, no doubt whatsoever. No doubt whatsoever. Uh, somebody once told me that baked and wires cupcakes are not traditional cupcakes, and that's for sure, and that's why yeah. I like them. But oh, the icing—I mean, those things are just yeah. No doubt. That, that's that's my answer there, uh, without a doubt. Uh, favorite thing about living in DC? Uh, there's so many, but I'll. I'll I'll say this uh it's an exciting town there's a lot of stuff going on and i live in georgetown i can walk just about anywhere yeah. anywhere i mean i can walk to i can walk to work i can walk to the cbs i can walk to the safeway i can walk to dupont circle i can walk to the white house i mean i, I can you know the i mean capital's a little far although i have walked there but i love that you walk to the river uh so you, you don't have to, to to drive you can really get around it's navigable the other thing is it's green Mm-hmm. It's a very green city, and I love New York. But one of the things you really note when you're in New York, and then you come to DC, is how how green everything is, how many parks there are, and, and, and how much uh, general foliage there is around. And then, what's the worst thing about living in DC? That we don't have a metro in Georgetown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I say that because you know. I haven't been on the metro in years because I doesn't go I, I, yeah. it doesn't go anywhere that I need to go. And by the time I walk to the metro, I could walk to wherever I was exactly. going. But I would say that's probably the the worst thing. And I remember when they were building the metro and the community association was opposing it, and that would just be so much more convenient, be so good for our faculty, so good for our students. I mean, we have students that work on Capitol Hill, and it's a pain to get to Capitol Hill. You either got to take a bus, uh, you know where to park. Uh, so even if you had a car, you're not going to do that. So you got to take a bus, or you got to go from here to there, or, or take an Uber or whatever. And so that that's probably one of the worst things about at least living where where I live in Washington. 
Washington, uh, D.C. And uh, my last question, I mean, you can plead the fifth on this one if you like, uh, but uh, D.C. statehood or not? Yes, absolutely. Uh, now, I, I will say this. Uh, I think it's fundamentally unjust. It goes back to this justice. It's fundamentally unjust that we're all disenfranchised and we can't vote. It's just it's wrong. I mean, we fought uh, the revolution because of this. Yeah. I mean, I pay taxes, so it is literally, you know, like my license tag says, taxation without representation. So I favor D.C. statehood. Now, I compromise. Uh, I mean, the current situation, in my view, is unjust and untenable. I compromise. The compromise might be something like this: uh, incorporate uh, D.C. into Maryland, give us a congressperson that can vote, and then we vote for Maryland senators. I'm okay on that. In, in other words, that's that's okay. I mean, you Baltimore's a big city, and they they don't have their you know whatever. I'm okay with that. But the idea that I can't vote for a voting member of the House of Representatives, uh, you know, we have. Uh, North, who's, who's fantastic, uh, and the, but she can't vote. Uh, the fact that I don't, that we don't have any kind of senatorial representation to me is just fundamentally mm. unjust. And, you know, as I pay my taxes, I'm sitting there thinking this is fundamentally unjust. Yeah. So, but, but I, I'd certainly support, I'd support state for Puerto Rico. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think anybody that wants to be a state should, should be a state or at least be enfranchised somewhere. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the voters in the district of Columbia, I don't know what the year was. We couldn't even vote in the presidential elections until like 1960-something. I don't remember the exact date. At least now we can vote for president, but we, we still don't have any representatives in Congress. Every now and then, somebody will post something on Twitter, and they'll say, call your senators on this. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you know what? It's, 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 it's definitely an unfortunate situation. And so uh, hopefully there's some progress made on that end. But uh, Tony, thank you so much for coming on. Learned a lot about you know, thank your Thank you. Career. Great question. Uh, so have, thank you so much. Have a, have a, have a great uh, a continuing conversation on all these things. Well, thank you so much. And well, you have a great day. Thank you.